how do we reintegrate people how do we integrate people to keep uh society safe to protect society and to ensure that actually people can kind of contribute to society in a productive way but if we don't allow people to contribute then then they can't and then they won't and if people can't and won't contribute then actually and we're shutting them off and isolating them then what else are we doing what other damage are we doing and actually as a society we will be kind of suffering that damage hi i'm naomi murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop i'm david jones so join us every wednesday morning Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today we are meeting with Belinda Winder, who is Professor of Forensic Psychology at Nottingham Trent University. She's the Research Director of the Crime Offending Prevention and Engagement Centre and part of the Sexual Offences, Crime and Misconduct Research Unit at the University. Belinda's primary area of research interest is sexual offending but she's also been very committed to exploring what life is like for people after they leave prison and how they reintegrate. She's the co-founder and previously a trustee of the Safer Living Foundation, a charity set up in 2014 to prevent further sexual offences. The charity won the Robin Corbett Award for Prisoner Rehabilitation in 2015 and was awarded the Third Sector Charity of the Year in 2019. In 2016, Belinda received a Butler Trust Award for her commitment to work in prisoner rehabilitation. That same year, she was also part of the Sokamaru team that received the Guardian University of the Year Award for Social and Community Impact. We've been looking forward to talking to Belinda for a very long time, and know her commitment to helping people reintegrate into society is going to be really inspirational for you to hear about. Welcome, Belinda. Thank you. Belinda, really good to see you again, and delighted to have a chance to talk with you on the podcast, as it does feel like we've been waiting to try and schedule something for a very long time. So, firstly, could you tell us something about your career path and how you came to be so involved in researching sex offending? Yeah, um, I wasn't actually uh, involved with uh, sort of forensic psychology or understanding um, offending behaviour when I first started out as a psychologist. I was actually more involved with looking at medical students, medical student selection. But um, what I was took up a role as a sort of voluntary part-time role as a chaplain in the prison service and um, just doing something like one day a month. And the um, there were a number of groups of people I started sort of visiting or um, in or within prison and that particularly, I guess, caught my attention. Um, there were, I mean, there were, there were people in there who were in there for kind of acquisitive offences, um, you know, armed robbery, burglary, etc. And I guess always in there with my psychology head, even if I'm there as a chaplain, I was I was seeing how people come into prison and just saying, actually, I can understand that pathway. People might talk about they subsequently discovered their dyslexia, but at school they found it difficult. Uh, they were often teased by others, uh, teased, bullied by others, um, ignored or discarded by the teachers. They started playing up. They got uh, expelled. They started to get into the crowd, taking drugs, and this led on to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can just see the, the clear trajectory of people in there. The two groups, I guess, that I found um, particularly interesting, um, whether from a psychological point of view or just talking to people, was the first were people, lifers, people in there who'd committed murder in for mandatory life. And the people I met there who typically were maybe kind of 10 years into a sentence for just intelligent, articulate, just normal people, just normal people who um, who had, who could paint for me the different forces and events that they could now see led up to this uh, one dreadful moment. 
um, but they were thoughtful, they were reflective, um, and um, and I always remember feeling two things. One is what what a waste for society that these people have now got another maybe ten years still uh, in this place. Um, and without being able to contribute much more to society, which is often what they wanted to do. And the other thing I realised was how how much how traumatised people were by what they had done. And that's and I just remember being struck by that, and and then thinking, well, I guess why why wouldn't people be traumatised? And and you hear the sort of media stuff and the tabloids and you you read the most um the most popular detective fiction in murder mysteries agatha christie where people are commit a murder and uh, kind of almost either enjoy it or looking for the next one etc and actually it's just that that all builds a picture of of this kind of man-eating lion um kind of analogy that myself and a colleague have have come up with about uh you know the managing line who will look for the next human being when actually it it people their life as i talked to would just um when they described what they'd done and they would they were just horrified by it they were ashamed disgusted and just and just kept reliving in that sort of unprocessed trauma type way uh the sort of details of what they'd done which actually I think would be helpful for people to know in, um, you know, it's not the, it's not the, yay, this is something I've done. It's, it was, it's, this is people who are, who are going to be living on with what they've done. And of course, um, you know, the families also of the victims are, but um, so, so that was one group. The other group of people who committed sex offences and those people seem such a heterogeneous group. The, um, from the, the well-educated to the poorly educated, from you know, just different in so many ways. And um, I guess as a psychologist, I was also really interested in, so what, what, you know, I can't see the clear trajectory to this kind of crime. I can't, I can't work out. I'm really interested as a psychologist in um, how do people end up um, com committing this, this kind of offence? And obviously there's a whole range of different sexual offences and, um, but it was it was interesting to me psychologically, and that started to um, move my interest in terms of research much more towards the forensic, and in particular towards people who've committed sexual crime. And I think there were another two um, kind of factors to to add to that. One was the fact the realization that I could absolutely happily work with uh, people who committed a sexual crime, and it's it's um, as a chaplain often. Uh, people who committed this kind of offence would would be left to me because some chaplain, some of the chaplains at the time, uh, voluntary chaplains would not want to work alongside people who'd committed a sexual offence. And I guess that's something we might come to later about the about how uh, um, this offence, this type of offence, is seen by people. Um, so, so one is I could, I could, I could do this work, and and I felt absolutely fine uh, doing it. And the other thing was that it mattered. It, you know, it was, um, it is an offence that causes such damage and distress to people that it felt like something just really worthwhile that I could do it. I was interested in doing it, and it felt really worthwhile to do. So, so those are probably the kind of pathways and the and the strands that that um brought me into this kind of area thank you linda that's a really fascinating uh, journey actually in terms of how your interest got sparked because i was particularly interested in what you had to say about working with people and finding that they were traumatized by their offenses because i think you know that's our experience um too that people often are very traumatized by the things they've done but the assumption of society being that you know prison must be really really tough because it's not enough of a punishment and there's there isn't much conversation about actually what it's like to live knowing that you've done something that is especially in the case of murder or or rape for instance something that you can't repair you can't adequately repair repair for and what it's like to live with that sense of guilt and shame for the rest of your life Absolutely, and and it it's strange. I find in sort of forensic research that there's a real, um, not just in forensic in forensic world, there's a real failure to apply normality to it. So so people can understand things like um, we deny things that uh, we are ashamed of, um, 
but the concept of denial in 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 crime or in kind of sexual offending is seen as something uh, as minimising, etc. But actually, we all we all as human beings we deny these that which we are ashamed of, that, that we feel guilty or bad about. And uh, similarly, things we have done. You know, if I think of the worst thing I've done, then um, you know, I I live with 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 that. I'm ashamed of that. It's it's. Um, so why would that be any different for? For, for someone else, for something that is, you know, so, so dreadful and, and uh, not just illegal, but, you know, so dreadful. And of course, it's the same. And it is so much more as well to, to, to live with and not thinking that that might cause people trauma. It's, uh, but it never occurred to me until I listened to someone who'd killed someone talking, talking about it and stuttering through. And, you know, he wanted to tell me about it, but but stuttering through. And I just thought, gosh, that is such a raw uh, experience and such, you know, raw emotion coming through. And and it's it's really sad in many ways that the people, the victims' families and victims don't ever understand or get to understand about that trauma. Instead, they just see the, the sort of media pictures of people laughing in the dark or, or just, you know, just... Um, they don't understand how much it can. And I think for me, if that if if I was thinking about it, that would help me as a as as a sort of victim or a victim's family. I think that would help to know that the suffering isn't just what is applied by the criminal justice system, but it's also there's internal suffering that goes on. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? That idea that people are seen as being remorseless because they talk about what they've done in a cold or even as you say, kind of like mocking way when that might be the only way that they can manage what they've done um, is to is to disconnect from it in some way, which obviously doesn't help victims at all. But but understanding some of those processes, if we as society were were more aware of what was going on, it might make it easier for, for people to deal with. People, I mean, you've touched on this a bit already, but people seem to struggle much more with sex offending than any other kind of crimes, don't they? I mean, the fact that you, you were seen as somebody who could do that work as opposed to other chaplains. Why Why do you think we're so much more disgusted by sexual offences than we are by the taking of life, for instance? Why do you think that is? Oh, I think this is a, is a really interesting point because, and there's a few bits to it. One of the bits is that I'm always struck um, by the um, kind of, what was the word? What's falseness of uh, us as a society in terms of the um, people subscribe to rape myths? Um, people, you know, we have you know uh, accounts of judge sentencing remarks which which subscribe to rape myths and what someone was wearing or whether they'd had previous partners before, etc. So, so, so society accepts lots of rape myths and puts a lot of victim blaming onto people then um so we have that sitting there we also have how many thousands and thousands of sexual offenses go unconvicted um you look at the the poor rate of um in terms of rape um sort of sentencing and convictions and you also look at the people who think that getting someone drunk thereby undermining their consent is a legitimate way to get someone to have sex with them or people putting pressure on someone in a relationship um, to have sex with them um, you know all of these are seen as as kind of part of society and 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 happening but they are all put to one side when people about think about someone who has got a sexual conviction and that automatically seems to put someone in a very different kind of place in people's heads and um i guess part of it is about uh when we think of a particular offense we think about how it would feel to us to be to be hurt by that offense uh we add in our sort of knowledge of what we think about the people who commit that type of offense which is in part driven by our experience but partly driven by the more extreme cases that we hear in the media as well um 
And I guess I kind of compare it with things like fraud, where fraud is seen, especially fraud against big businesses, is seen as, uh, you know, there's the phrase everybody's doing it in, in sort of fraud research. So it's seen as uh, kind of not quite acceptable, but um, people would not uh, would not react in any way the same way. And violent offences, um, you know, the number of times in... Um, when I've been in a secure hospital prison and someone in a patient or or someone in prison has said to me, well, it's, it's, but it's not a sexual offence. And it's like, why, why does that make it better that it's a violent offence and not a sexual offence? It, it makes, you know, why, why do you think that's better? And they don't want to be seen as kind of person who commits a sexual offence. And again, that feeds into this um, idea of the sort of hierarchies and the classifications. And, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why sexual offences are seen as uh, such a different um, category. As I said, I think it's something about the perhaps the um, normality of sexual behaviour that maybe we we can um, we see it as something that disrupts very normal kind of intimate relationships and interactions with others, and so we see it as something that which does affects people's you know relationships with others all the way th th their sex life in their in their relationship going onwards will always be impacted by a sexual offense against them it it you know i guess it cuts at the very heart of some of our uh sort of our human interactions and so maybe it's a recognition of the the widespread damage it it does um but i still think that doesn't quite um um really explain it so as i say there's this there's this uh, strange kind of dichotomy between the rape myths and society and how we see um people who commit a sexual offense i guess in some ways i see it as is now self-sustaining in the sense that because people with a sexual conviction are seen as a different a different species almost and because everything else in society buys into that then I think this just exacerbates it more and more. And um, it also means that people can't come forward for help because for someone to step forward and say, actually, I'm struggling with, um, you know, I can't stop thinking about sex or my, uh, I've realised my sexual interests or sexual preferences, you know, I, I find children attractive, um, but I've no one to tell about that. Um, you know, that, you know, it's, it's impossible really for people to come forward and say that. And I think that um, that and the inability to say I'm concerned about my kind of that I'm thinking about sex all the time, I'm sexually preoccupied, um, I need some help. Um, I think people can't come forward and say that. And people who do go to their GP, etc. you know, the police might be contacted. Um, there's there's no sort of middle ground. There's no sense of actually we need to get you some help or support. We need to make sure uh, you don't uh, commit an offence. So it's um, I think I think sexual offences are seen almost an uncontrollable behaviour by people and are partly frightening because of that and partly because they have become people who commit a sexual offence have become so so separated from the rest of society in everyone's minds that um that once you have that conviction you become uh, just a kind of a beyond the pale and um and i think everything in society is is pushing that margin even further to to make it um um you know more difficult i guess for people to seek help before or to actually reintegrate afterwards it's really interesting because as, you, as you're talking, I was also thinking about the shame for the victims as well, because it seems like talking about sexual abuse is also a particularly challenging area for victims of child abuse, for instance. It, it seems like it's easier to talk about physical abuse or or emotional, uh, psychological abuse and, and sexual abuse seems to be hard. And I wondered um, to what degree is, you know, is some of is some of this partly because as a society we struggle to have conversations about ordinary you know vanilla sex not not offending sex um you know we struggle to have those conversations and wondered whether are there any you might not know the answer but i wondered whether there are any societies where you don't see the same hierarchy obviously it's still offending but where perhaps there isn't the same othering that happens um, yeah, I mean, while, while you were uh, talking, I, I was thinking in particular, actually, it's harsh for, for boys. I think 
boys who have been sexually offended against as as um, well, as children as boys, I think find it particularly tough. And I think the the uh, male reaction to any kind of you know in terms of as a young boy, a physical stimulation of the penis may well produce an erection. And I think that then leads into potential shame or confusion. You know, do I enjoy it? Do I not enjoy it? Um, and I think that is something that um, is really problematic. And I think that can also, um, lack of being able to come forward and say, well, actually this happened to me and um, this was abuse means men in particular typically might bottle it up much more than women. I think it's less socially acceptable for a, for a, um, a male to be uh, almost sexually abused as a child than a, than a than a, than a female that that actually the script is out there for females that this this happened um i think for for men it's more difficult and they probably had a um it's probably more difficult to go to the police or to seek help or to talk to anyone and i think it's also more um and it has until the last decade really it's also even in the tabloids you know the the male adult male teacher and the and the young female student that is has still been touted as um that's abuse but the other way around it's been seen as you know if a teacher female teacher abusing the young boy was good looking it's seen as well you know lucky boy and you know i think that script has has narrative has only just changed really in the last i don't know five maybe uh 10, 10 years so i think i think the and the problem with that is that then the young boys who have been abused and who haven't shared it and that this sort of bottling up uh, inability to get help, to support, to even kind of talk about it, I think has probably led to to certainly to further stress, but also potentially been part of a slippery slope to them reenacting some of that abuse. Um, in terms of uh, other societies, um, I don't, I don't know actually. I think it's something probably uh, it would be good to to look at where where the discussions and conversations about sexual relationships um, and uh, sort of healthy sex and unhealthy sex are much more. Possibly you find it more in some families than others. Um, I don't know if there's some societies that typically um, are are better at. Uh, uh, being open and talking this through and providing an open space for for other other people to talk about um well, i'm not i'm not sure really this, this is a fascinating area isn't it really um, i mean i'm thinking because freud talks about polymorphous sexuality the idea you know that the the infant was sexually excited by a very wide range of things and actually, that's true of adults uh, as, as well. You mentioned you know, adolescents, but they very easily aroused by all kinds of, of things. But we establish a set of rules, don't we? Social rules, and some things then become taboo. But it very much depends where you are. So if you're in a prison, you know, it may be that it's not taboo for one man to sexually abuse another man that that isn't regarded as a, a sexual offense that's just regarded as one tough man having his bitch as it were within a prison with that set of cultures so all of these things it seems to me are extremely kind of flexible yeah we've probably got in in standard relationships about how how people negotiate uh, sex in couples between themselves um and um you know, there's there's a lot of conversations that could go on about you know consent and you think about when it became uh, um, illegal uh, set in law for that um, that it um, the offense of a man uh, raping his wife and how long that took and 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 some of the early um, kind of judgments in terms of well you know once a woman marries a man then she, she gives her body to him and it's you know that's uh, therefore, how could it be illegal? I think is 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 kind of uh, the way the judgment went. But you, but there is a real um, yeah discrepancies between um, what uh, society thinks about someone who's been convicted of a sexual offence 
and the societal kind of sexual behaviour. Thank you, Belinda. Do you think that services tolerate a lack of compassion and a degree of othering for those who've committed sexual offences in a way that wouldn't be acceptable for people who've committed other kinds of crime? I'm just thinking that the offenders with personality disorder pathway organised an event which was specifically focused on what it's like working with sexual offenders, stating, you know, that this is because they're a much more challenging group to work with. And that, for me, that felt quite uncomfortable because it seemed to kind of condone having a different attitude towards this particular category of offenders, rather than thinking that these are all people who have got huge problems in prison, who've impacted on other people's lives in a very destructive way. And so, yeah, I'm just wondering whether services sometimes contribute to entrenching those kind of attitudes towards the people that we're working with. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think sometimes when you see there's a couple like lived experience posts, and I think uh, that's the Ministry of Justice, I think, had a post uh, maybe a year or so ago of someone with lived experience, and there are two people with these two types of offences who were not allowed to apply. One was a sexual offence, one was a terrorist offence. And and it and it and the sexual offence seemed what well, you know, I could understand if if the if the post was um you know I don't know, it if it was something directly relevant to the post, the environment someone's working in and the type of task. But it just seemed to be a but we're not having this per, person with this type of offence or this type of offence. And so, you know, so why? So, so what, what, you know, why, why not? I don't, um, you know, it has to be, we, we get really sloppy in our language and we get really sloppy in our way of, right, right, we're not going to have, you know, we just, we just take on uh, what someone else has said. We're not going to have someone who's got sexual conviction because of this, this and this. And it's not direct it's not targeted it's not it's not relevant it's not necessarily applicable but it's just uh, well we better not have that just in case or just in case the papers get hold of it and that and that just means that this perpetuates the sort of the the sort of othering the distance and and that is important um because it's not just about being nice to people it's about how do we reintegrate people how do we integrate people to keep uh, society safe to protect society and to ensure that actually people can kind of contribute to society in a productive way but if we don't allow people to contribute then then they can't and then they won't and if people can't and won't contribute then actually and we're shutting them off and isolating them then what else are we doing what other damage are we doing and actually as a society we will be kind of suffering that damage so yes I think the services and certainly in terms of charities working um, with uh, charities who are, uh, who are frightened really of saying actually we welcome or accept people with a sexual conviction in our services because they are worried about the negative publicity which might affect their funding, about uh, their ability to rent buildings or rent spaces and, and all sorts of things really. So and it's 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 you know it's so it's better really to say you know we are not making a statement about uh types of uh people or the offenses we kind of accept or not we're just saying we we take people who are appropriate for our services i mean i think i've i've even found it in ringing up to um trying to book uh rooms for to run circles of support and accountability so Circles of Support and Accountability are kind of a now a pretty well-known sort of rehabilitative um, kind of intervention, I guess, where if you've got maybe four volunteers from the community and uh, someone who's called call member, someone who's got a sexual conviction, medium or high risk of causing further harm and um, wanting to book a, a room for an hour for their sort of weekly meeting. And uh, I remember one centre I kind of rang up, neighbourhood centre, absolutely no way, we're not we're not having people like that in here. And so what you you have people come through your doors every day. You you've you've got people like this. You've got people who will be like this, who will commit offences, you've got people who have committed offences. You just just don't know about any of them because you're not asking them. But here am I saying up front, this is who we have. These are our, our assessments. Um, this is the, the protocol we will we will work by. And 
you know, this intervention is, you know, has proven to be really effective in reducing the already very low risk of someone causing further harm, but absolutely not no way we're not having those. So it's, um, it's interesting, though, this idea that everyone, uh, that no one is committing an, um, uh, or ever going to commit a sexual offence unless you've already got conviction. And in some ways, they're probably the last people now who are going to be committing a, a you know, a sexual offence there's um you know it's not quite the case but it's it's um you know what you want to have is good risk assessment protocols health and safety protocols to ensure that everyone is safe in in a kind of community center it, it's not about um you know bad apples or it's not about the person you know it, it's about preventing harm and getting people to work together in a in a careful and safe way being mindful of the fact that something like 80 percent of all sexual offenses are committed by someone without a previous sexual conviction uh, or a conviction so 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 who are you guarding against actually what you want to be doing is guarding guarding everyone and protecting all of society and which means just having careful protocols for for how you manage your your business really um but so yes services um services that uh, are too scared to say that we support and help people with sexual offence because they'll lose funding or because their insurance will be that much greater so um, as it is people with a criminal conviction their insurance you know trying to get house insurance might be five times the cost of someone else without any um, specific um, actuarial kind of uh, reason kind of for it but um, so people are um, I've got an uphill battle I think with a conviction especially um, a sexual conviction to to um, to reintegrate and integrate back into society. Thanks very much Belinda and a slightly different um, tack now uh, one of the areas you've you've also explored is why men drop out of treatment in therapeutic communities can you tell us why you decided to research this and what you found? Yeah I think um, I was interested in sort of therapeutic communities and how how they um, how they kind of function how they worked and I think um, one of my first um, glimpses into them was I went to give a talk um, about actually circle support and accountability in a therapeutic com um, community prison. And um, I was waiting for, I'd given my talk and there was some uh, men queue up to ask questions at the end. And uh, one guy jumped in with a question and um, started to ask it. And the two men behind him said, um, excuse me, pretty politely said, excuse me, um, so-and-so was in, was in front of you because this guy had kind of come in from the side and like jumped in a little bit. So I then had to wait while they took about 10 minutes between the two, three, four of them to establish uh, who had been in front, the reasons why the person tried to jump in, why they apologised for why they had. Um, how that might have felt and looked to the other person. So after about 15 minutes of listening to the guys working through it, and it's such a, you know, in the kind of way you just wish everyone was like this, that, that actually they thought through, they talked through, they they worked out where they were coming from, why they did what they did, how it might look to the person, how it might felt to the person, how it felt to them, etc. And I just thought, gosh, th yeah, these are, these are quite incredible places. Um, and... Uh, so the opportunity came up to to look at uh, non-completion in this uh, kind of therapeutic community prison, and interest in particular looking in terms of uh, people who who uh, jumped out of treatment before they'd got to say the eighteen month mark, um, and I think perhaps surprisingly, maybe surprisingly, it was many of the reasons were that actually even though it was a therapeutic community, you know in terms of the prison, there were still cracks in it in terms of how the staff and the other kind of men in the prison would treat those with a sexual conviction or a sexual element to their offending. So even in this place, which uh, has so many wonderful things going for it, there were still some sort of cracks in the system. Those kind of old hierarchies, well, old hierarchies, current hierarchies, the, the othering, the um, the bullying even of uh, those with a, a sexual offence still 
still took place and um and i think even so with staff as well so if if a, a prisoner without a sexual conviction um made uh um i say threats or said something derogatory about someone another another person there with a sexual conviction then the staff might just agree with them or say yeah no feel the same so 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 the so the the boundaries weren't being held in terms of by the some of the staff probably just just some and um and by uh other people in the prison with different types of offenses and so i guess that was you know obviously that that's for people who the small i say small number who jumped dropped out of treatment but that was that was a bit sort of disappointing but i guess it's all all a kind of a a work in progress isn't it and uh about how we you know how we portray this um and how we distance uh, people with a sexual conviction and how that's portrayed or seen kind of by others and that it's going to happen even in the, the best the best places but that how how much that can impact on people and um in this case very sadly it, you know it, it impacts efficiently that people just want to leave um, and go back to the prisons where they would be in the vulnerable prison prisoner wings and and just surrounded by the people with a sexual conviction. I was thinking because obviously I've worked in therapeutic community prisons quite a quite a lot, and uh, looking back, I'm quite ashamed. I think that's probably the right word. Um, about the way that we treated some men, because it was almost a mark of the toughness of the institution that people had to fit in to the TC. They had to want to be there and they had to justify their position. If they didn't, um, then they didn't get through the first three months often. Um, and um, contrast that with... Uh, you know, the Fens, where Naomi worked, where they put a huge amount of effort into uh, preparing people for treatment um, at the, during those early yeah, months and uh, years. So it's quite a contrast. So I think going back, I would do things quite differently now. I was also, you also touched on something else, Belinda, actually, the fact that um, prisoners who are convicted of sexual offences um, are identified often as vulnerable people in prison. Like, in a way, I think that's language that the system almost uses to mask its contempt for to try and make it okay. Um, and actually, you know, someone who's committed sexually, you know, you can't say that you know there's someone who's sexually offended against children that is vulnerable. If you're, you know, if you're the child you'd find that person very scary. If you've been um, raped, you'd find that person very scary. So to label them as vulnerable offenders um, or vulnerable people in prison seems a misnomer, but also it seems a bit of a way of the prison services way of managing their own disgust for individuals that by somehow labelling them vulnerable, it's going to produce a compassionate response rather than an othering response but it it serves exactly the same same purpose really surely yeah it, it does and i mean i have heard um the last few months there's been one or two prison gunners looking at uh how they might integrate uh people with sexual uh conviction and people with say violent convictions and and thinking about ways to do that because if we can't do it in prison where if someone hurts someone else then then that would be more immediately kind of obvious and seen and can be dealt with etc then surely we can't do it in society but um and thinking about how that might be done and, and that's an interesting point and i think something like a really interesting kind of workshops of day-to-day -day activity because day-to-day -day activities in most prisons workshops are just you know putting 10 twixes in a bar so whatever your you know skill set knowledge interest educational level you know doing that all day kind of thing is not it's not satisfying but having a workshop where you could you know get uh qualifications or get good kind of work experience and having that as an attractive workshop to go to but one which is open to people with a sexual conviction and people with any other uh, kind of conviction um might be a way of um 
you know, starting to kind of build up some connections between people and for people to see that actually this is this is you know you need to get to know people don't you? you need you need to to meet people and on a kind of a personal level to feel some sort of connection to them or some um association with them or some you know to to understand that actually you've been seeing them as a as a stereotype um and that's that's you know, people are more complex than that and that we you need to start seeing people in more multi-dimensional uh, kind of ways and that so that might be one way of doing it but I think that would be um, you know a really good um, move for well for everyone really. I think Linda's answered all my questions really David. Okay so Belinda you've also been involved in researching the use of anti-libidinal medication. Can you tell us a bit about that research? Yeah, so um, I think it started back in about maybe 2011, really, looking at, um, you know, for some people uh, with a sexual conviction, um, they have uh, an accompanying level of sexual preoccupation. So thinking about, really just thinking about sex all the time, it's like having a radio station going on, playing loudly in the same room you're in, and it's just kind of going sex, 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 sex the whole time. So it kind of stops, it stops people, let's say even like following the plot of a film, it might lead people um, trying to kind of masturbate or get some kind of sexual outlets, maybe uh, 10, 15, 20 times a day. So we're not, it's not this sort of jokey kind of, um, I know, uh, it's not about having a sexual conviction and it's not about just having a, either an interest or a kind of a, a healthy interest in sex or even like at the beginning of a relationship, people having maybe a lot of sex, it's a new relationship. This is about people for whom this is really a, a very much a well-being issue and uh, it can also become a well-being issue for for uh, someone else if, if they actually offend against someone as well. So we're looking at people who are causing physical, emotional mental damage to themselves and potentially to others with this kind of level of uh, sexual preoccupation. And there are a couple of types of medication, including hormone uh, medication, but also including SSRIs, which can really dampen this level of sexual preoccupation down to, to, to such an extent that people can kind of get to grips with it, really, and to find... Um, better ways of coping with it or even to put the sex get the sexual preoccupation because that might be an expression an unhealthy way to cope with trauma adversity uh, difficult experiences uh, they've they've come through a way of blotting out things um, and so I've been looking at evaluating this sort of medication over the last yeah 11 12 years and finally moving on to what we hope will be um uh, well, will be a, a randomised control trial of, in particular, the SSRIs, because the other medications have, have got good, uh, robust research that shows that they are, can be helpful in reducing se sexual preoccupation to us to, to so just a healthy and normal uh, kind of level of sexual interest. Um, and, um, but the SSRIs are currently... Um, although a reduction in libido and kind of uh, sexual preoccupation is a is a known side effect of the medication, it's not it's not on label. It's not it's not something that GPs and medical doctors can prescribe in the community for people because it hasn't been tested properly yet. In um, as as that has been the main effect, so that's what we're moving into now. And I guess one couple of things about that. Um, one is that, uh, so just to be clear, this is about uh, sexual preoccupation. It isn't about just because someone has committed a sexual offence does not mean to say they suffer from sexual preoccupation. So this is a, a subset, you know, whether it's, you know, maybe 15, 20 percent of people um, with a sexual conviction. We, so, so, but it's also exists people in the in a society and we are seeing at the moment a real increase of the pandemic with people with internet mediated sexual offences and this kind of uh, preoccupation addiction compulsivity etc um, as I say often a consequence of really unhealthy coping and trying to blot out stresses and traumas etc so this this could be really useful for 
people. It could be really useful for people in the community. It could be really useful as a prevention. Um, and it could be a really useful uh, means for people uh, uh, when people are released in the community as well, if they wanted to go back to the GP or to a sexology clinic to say, actually, I feel like I'm struggling a bit again and I want to have some education to really help me kind of dampen down the sort of sexual thoughts and urges. So it can it can be useful, as I say, very much. I'm really excited. It can be used as a prevention. And we and this this would be part of the offering support to people who are saying, actually, I, I am worried about my sexual interests, where they lie or how the magnitude of them or the fact that I'm using it as a coping to block things out. Um, and uh, so I'd like some medication. So this could be uh, a kind of a, a real building block to, to helping make that all available to people in the community and reducing the number of uh, kind of sexual offences um, in society. And really opening up the conversation, I guess, about actually what you do if if you are concerned about your own sexual behaviour, your thoughts, your urges. Where do you go to for help and what help is there available? Because at the moment, you know, as I say, it's all underground and people are, are, um, are not considered. This is not a normal thing to talk about, not a, even a possible thing to talk about. So um, I think it could be really, you know, it's really important. Um, but um, but, yeah, no, come back to me and maybe a year and a half and we'll see where we're at with this so when i was last had any involvement in this field which is probably 40 years ago or more the medications used turned people into a kind of a zombie-like state and uh, completely removed their libido which obviously was a you know serious issue and a major cause of why people stopped using medication. Uh, I, I mean, I gather from what you're saying that things have moved on a bit now, but are there other ethical issues? Things have moved on. And of course, the dosage, in particular, the antiandrogens I think you're talking about has really been kind of reduced uh, as well. I think there's also a recognition that actually what we want to do is, is people to have a healthy sex life. It's not just have an absent sex life. It's a healthy sex life. And so we want to encourage people to make use of medication if and when they need it and then to come off it as and when they need it as well. And, and a sort of uh, distilling of dosage, really. Um, in terms of the other ethical issues with it, um, I think I think certainly how it is perceived as being, um, the, the role of it um, as people move through the justice system and out, misunderstandings about it, um, all of these, I think, are probably uh, issues that we need to uh, really think through. I mean, for example, if someone... Um, uh, goes to the parole board and is taking medication there will be some people saying well that means they can just stop taking it at any point so how can we trust people which is the same is true of any kind of anything you learn any skill set you learn or not it's also quite true of our own um, attitude to medication you know I, I shouldn't but there's you know antibiotics or whatever that you there's a tendency to want to stop taking them as soon as you feel better and and it's only you know, you have to kind of follow the course and finish the course, etc. But we all, again, it's about natural behaviour. People stop taking medication when they feel that they've it's served its purpose or it's worked, etc. So, so I think um, so. People attending the the parole board are they seen as more risky because they're on medication, or uh, are they seen as only safe because they're on medication? And it's not. It shouldn't be about that. It should be about. Um, it's about how people are behaving and how people are acting and thinking about um, that people are using this as, this as one tool in the box to, to help people um, manage themselves um, and their behaviour such that they can lead a fulfilling life, but also that they have means available to them for the times that they feel they need it. And we should make it really easy for people to be able to access the medication. But um, but yes, there is, and as always in terms of people taking medication in, in prison and particularly something that like is medication where it's how, do, how are people viewed um, by taking it? Um, and uh, yeah, what does it, 
and what does it kind of say about us? And also there's going to be some voices in society that say we're just straight people or just make make people have medication, make it mandatory, etc., which goes against you know all our sort of ethical you know principles, which sometimes seem to just go to pop when we're talking about um, sexual convictions. Thank you, uh, Belinda. So earlier on, we mentioned a wide range of activities that you've been uh, involved in. And so we're wondering how your practical work, for example, with criminal justice charities, uh, has it given you any additional insights that you might not otherwise have gained? I think I've been lucky in that I have um, met people in prisoners here, hospitals, as uh, as a chaplain, as a kind of a voluntary role, and chaplains aren't really looked upon as real staff. Um, so, especially in the early years, in the mid nineties, the the prison staff would see chaplains as a as a weak link, as in uh, not that much different to someone in prison, really. Um, and I have seen the the power uh, wielded by prison staff, and you know, as a as a chaplain, I've had uh, religious books designed for um, someone in prison just dropped by the prison staff on the floor or put in a box, be packaged up and sent to somewhere basically where the person was not able to access them and the prison staff just saying, I don't care, what are you going to do about it? Um, so I've seen uh, the power abuses um, in uh, from, from, you know, a, particularly at that point from prison staff. I've also, I've seen, um, you know, talk to people in prison from a more, you know, again, being a chaplain, you're not considered in quite the same way as other prison staff. And that means you perhaps get a bit more of a well-rounded view of, of who people are and how they are and what they're like. Um, I've also worked in prison as a, as a researcher, um, and seeing people, you know, trying to deal with people in terms of interventions, and um, I've seen, um, and then practically working um, charities, seeing how uh, our own organisation and those of other organisations and people. So, so I, I feel like I've got a reasonably well-rounded um, view of um, our people. Um, and you know, I've been privy to lots of different uh, perspectives on them. And I guess what I find interesting is that people tend to have quite uh, be quite siloed in their ideas. And and so working in an organisation, criminal justice organisation, people might be happy thinking about supporting someone with a sexual conviction, uh, as in they give some support to that person, but would not uh, and would argue argue absolutely for the, for the person that person's rights but to have that person uh, live next door to them etc suddenly you'd get them on a different perspective or a different angle and so so I guess I've I've kind of found it interesting how the shutters come up in terms of I I can I can be um, empathic and rehabilitative in this way but not in this way and similarly you get people where you they might be um uh, much uh in their sort of prison staff role uh with someone in one way and yet they might have a friend who's who has a sexual conviction they see them as completely different so so i find it quite interesting how how um much we yeah how much there are silos really in in terms of people's heads and i work all the time i think to try to pull myself up when i find myself drifting into into that sort of area i mean you, you you're not going to like everyone and it's not like i'm saying i go into prison and people with sex which i i think you know they're all great guys there's some people i find annoying some people i don't like some people i do this some some people who seem really you know uh wise and intelligent etc so there's just it's just a range it's like in society and um but i'm there for a particular role i do a particular post but i guess i try not to have 
uh, such siloed kind of ideas between people. I'm not sure that particularly answers your question, but I guess it is something I've noticed that 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 people can, you know, they can hold without even perhaps realizing it. Hold very strict, uh, have these very strict kind of silos that that don't then reach out to other people. Well, uh, yeah, I suppose you're saying you're wide wide experience enables you to see these silos and to to work to kind of link them up or work across them sounds very sensible yeah i think i I think so but i mean i find myself um even now i i I think uh, a few weeks ago i was saying something i can you know it's it's you know people we should be treated as human beings and and i got called off by a colleague said what do you mean as human beings or you know because because they are human beings. It's like, of course, it's because, every, you know, we're all human beings. So it's not treated as a human being because that implies that they're not. Um, or, you know, so some with sexual convulsion, of course they are a human being. So you, you find yourself falling into these kind of phrases and um, that are, that it, and it takes either someone else to point it out to you or you realise yourself that actually what, you know, and that phrase that's that's really quite um insulting or patronizing or um undermines uh someone's you know i don't know humanity etc so yeah i think i think it's nothing you know i think it's something for us all to be sort of mindful in language and um terminology i think is something that i um a few years ago started making a real effort to address and it started with just really Perhaps probably paying lip service to it, saying this is this is the latest this is the latest thing talking about someone with a sexual conviction, and increasingly, um, and as the literature and the research came in about actually it affects how uh, the sort of brain patterns, how we react to people, it affects whether people often volunteer with people, it, it affects so many different aspects. And thinking, and you're right as well. Would I ever want to be seen as, um, you know? Um, as one particular thing. So would I want to be, see, I was saying, I was, I was uh, giving a talk some months ago and saying this to governors and uh, deputy governors, etc., and and saying like, so just think the last time, maybe you had a few glasses of wine, you were drunk. Would you like to now be called like a, a drunk, a drunkard? You know, would, would you like that to be the label you are known by? Is that, is that your master status? Is that your main feature? Then, and if not, then why do we why do we stick this on people with uh, convictions? It's like we will take, and this is a well versed argument that many people have made. Why do we take the worst thing that someone has done in their life and use that to define them forevermore? And that's when we use this language um, that offenders and um, you know. That, that's what we're doing, and um, which kind of means we ought to do that to everyone. If, if, if that's a, if that's the case, so you know, do we say someone who has been, you know, um, you know, faithful to their partner? Do we, you know, what, what are we going to take about everyone in that case, or or do we say actually, so this is part of who they are? It's always going to be part of that. They've got this conviction, or they've or they've committed this offence. Absolutely, and I'm not trying to undermine or or in any way minimise that and the damage that's done. But actually that is also part of them that, and there are lots of other parts to them and we should actually be really uh, thinking about and bringing to the fore the, the positive parts uh, to people. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I say, uh, I do quite a lot of mountain biking and one of the things you're, you're, you're taught in mountain biking, if you're trying to miss a, a, a kind of a hole in the, you know, the road or a, et cetera, you don't look at it, you don't focus on that because otherwise you will go into it um, and end up coming off the bike. So what you do is you look at the, the good part, you look at the way around it, you look at, you take the right line around it. And in some ways I think there's, that's got um, relevance for, for this. As I say, I'm not trying to undermine, I'm not trying to minimize, but I am saying that actually we, we in some circumstances, that's what we are looking at this, someone with this type of conviction or this is what we're interested in, but in other, areas of life in other ways we're talking about people this this is just something about them that we know this is this is one of the one of the things the factors about them that we know and there are many other i'm sure far more positive things so bearing all that in mind do you do you think there's scope for the use of restorative justice and 
restorative justice principles to be used more with people with um, who have offended sexually? With uh, restorative justice, that I think it for me, it's all about the person who's suffered harm. And um, you'll see I'm trying to also avoid the, the kind of label as well, a victim and survivor, because I don't think those are useful labels to give people either that imply in the same way that Naomi talked about vulnerable. Um, it, it's kind of a badge stuck on someone. Um, but so I think restorative justice is all about what can be done to help someone who's suffered harm make sense of that harm. And so something about circle support and accountability, which is kind of indirectly restorative in that some there's, you know, certainly there's literature about people who have stepped forward to be volunteers who have um, themselves suffered harm, not from that person, but from someone else suffered sexual harm. And I think it can help some people make make sense and come to some kind of peace with uh, what has happened to them. But for me, it is all about the the person, people who have suffered harm. And and I guess rather than thinking about what what might be useful for people who have caused the harm in those cases. Linda Name and I have worked uh, well, spoken with quite a number of people who have been caught up in uh, sexual abuse scandals in churches and boarding schools and other similar institutions. Do such places engage at all with the work of the Safer Living Foundation? Well, I think I think um, anywhere there's a kind of a closed system. Uh, whether it's any kind of religious institution or other institution, I think, uh, I think uh, people are increasingly looking to um, engage with uh, charities um, such as the SLF and other charities working in the area to think about what they could do to, um, I guess, to um, to deal with the problem of uh, sexual crime and sexual abuse and. I think, um, I mean, we're going to find sexual abuse wherever there's a power differential, you know, the, uh, whether it's uh, in terms of religious terms or it's schools, it's, uh, you know, uh, sport, etc. I think we are going to find there's going to be sexual abuse and it's and they're almost more tight knit the group and the more the group has to lose from the outside world, the more it sexual abuse will be potentially covered up or kept hidden or kept secret. So I guess for me, it's not so much about the um, organisations uh, working with criminal justice charities. It's more about the sort of the sort of safeguarding and the reporting of um, the sexual crime and sexual abuse and how that is done and the, and the, and the means and mechanisms that are that are set up to help that kind of happen um because at the moment what we're seeing is that you know that it's taking there's a really long uh, lag between sexual abuse first being kind of uh noted or reported or um in certain institutions and it kind of coming out and it being really explored properly and dealt with properly and i and i go from you know in fact the police the you know, numerous, every religious um, sort of setting. Uh, as I say, we've seen the, you know, schools, the, you know, abuse of position of trust, that kind of uh, sexual offence that came out to, to to really try to protect uh, people in uh, where there was this power differential. So I, I would say, in, in fact, I mean, it's taking a question and moving it on, but I would say if there's any of these kind of closed uh, institutions where it's not already being looked into, the number of cases haven't already been recognised and dealt with, then I would say we ought to be looking at right there because there will be ones happening. It's it's about how things are being covered up and, um, and placed under the carpet, really. Thank you. Naomi, I think I finished one of your questions. Do you want to wind us up? But Belinda, you've spent many years exploring a part of human life that other people would prefer not to look at. So I imagine that you've probably heard some quite distressing stories at times. How have you maintained your own physical and emotional well-being whilst doing this work? Um, well, I would say that our 
probably there's two bits to that. One is that I really have realized I'm comfortable around people who are damaged. And um, that in part has come from my kind of upbringing and a realization that people might seem fine on the surface to other people, but actually might be perpetuating harms themselves. So, so the world has never been black and white for me anyway in that way. Um, but uh, for myself, as, um, as, you, as you do this work, I guess one of the things um, I do, I run, I have dogs, I watch MasterChef rather than anything where any harm can happen to anyone unless it's like dropping something on the floor. So my TV viewing, you can probably see how, how stressful my life is at the time in terms of by looking at, at, um, at what I'm kind of watching and um, my poor partner here then has to deal with the fact that we are not watching anything that is um, going to have anything bad happen to anyone um, at any point. Um, so probably, you know, given given that, then obviously there is there is there are some um, impacts that you you kind of manage and have to manage. But always getting out and about in nature, I think, and and seeing yourself as as being able to process things. That's it. Sometimes with with the work we all do and with workplaces nowadays and the hectic nature of work and remote working, all the emails that come through, if you don't kind of switch off now and again to to run or to walk or just to let your brain process things, then um, I think I think that's what I need to do sometimes. And if I need to do it, then I just, I, you know, I will do it because you... you yeah, if you if you can't look after yourself and um then you're not going to be able to look after kind of anyone else as well so yeah probably that that and dogs thank you very much belinda that was an excellent conversation thank you and a great answer very nice to meet you belinda at long last and you and maybe um i say another time uh, i'd love to the lived experience uh stuff actually would be would be really good to um talk about